0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rachel O'Dwyer, lecturer in digital cultures at the School of Visual Culture at the National College of Art and Design, Dublin. We will discuss her book, Tokens, The Future of Money in the Age of the Platform, which is published by Verso. So welcome to the show, Rachel.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, pleasures of mine. I was delighted to be on a panel with you the other day and learn about this fantastic new book, which was an absolute delight to read and already kind of informing how I'm thinking about a lot of the stuff that, that I'm working on. But I, I was thinking that for listeners who haven't had the pleasure of reading your books yet, maybe we could kind of start from the very beginning, like you do in the book. And talk about what a token is and what you mean by by a token. How have they been used? How are they used? What is a token to, to your thinking?
1: Yeah, I guess I think about tokens as being sort of more and less than money. So economists have a very sort of classic and quite rigid definition of what money is. So they speak about money as being a unit of account, a store of value and a means of exchange. So something that you can use to hold value, something you can use to sort of determine the price of other things and uh, something you can use to obviously, you know, exchange for other things. And, you know, if it it doesn't do these things, then it's not money. And uh, money is also something that tends to be issued by the state. But uh, tokens are things that sort of ghost this economy of real money, and they're sort of more and less than these functions. Um, They're sort of less because where, you know, money, I guess, is at least in theory, it's fungible. So one dollar is supposed to be the same as any other tokens tend to come with strings attached. So. Kind of conditions about who can spend them um, or where or when or at what time so like a, a really just straightforward example of a token would be something like a um uh, a beer token in a student union bar you know where um say that bar doesn't have a, a an alcohol license for example so instead of actually handing over money to, to get alcohol, you hand over your money, you get a token, and then you hand over this token and you you get a beer. So there's kind of a, a little bit of a sleight of hand going on. It's like this isn't actually handing over money for goods and services. So, you know, the token is sort of standing in for that. Or another example would be something like a book voucher where this particular token just gives you um, access to one particular good, like a book. Um, so... Yeah, tokens, I suppose, are sort of limited in that particular way. Uh, uh, maybe a more nefarious example of a token is um, something like uh, where Amazon, for example, pays its mechanical Turk workers. So workers who produce, you know, do very sort of menial kind of piecemeal tasks on their crowdsource platform in a gift card balances outside of the US and more recently outside of India. So instead of paying those workers in dollars, those workers are paid in Amazon gift balances so this is another kind of a token um economy where i guess instead of being paid in 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 dollars which you can spend on anything these workers are being paid in gift balances that can only be spent on the amazon store and that are tied to their identity so these tokens are sort of less than money in that they're kind of have have specific restrictions attached but what i find interesting about tokens as well is that in some ways they're kind of more than money and so online obviously you know we've heard a lot about things like nfts but we also have things like um, gaming tokens and tokens that are used to sort of gift streamers for content they're producing and these tokens are used to pay but they're also used to do things like uh, troll people and uh, brag and bond people to each other um, so they have these functions that that sort of go beyond, I guess, exchange value as well. And and that's something I also found really, really fascinating. So yeah, very long answer there. But um I I think tokens are so fascinating because they're exchange media, but they're they're also so much more.
0: Mm-hmm. Are tokens as a medium of exchange a relatively new phenomenon? Or have they been around for a long time and if you were to look them kind of in a historical context why tokens and what were they used for historically
1: um yeah i mean it's funny writing a book i realized how little control you have over things like your book cover and like your subtitle and things like that so the subtitle of my book is like the future of money in the age of the platform and I had very little say over actually what the book was even called and I kind of feel like the future of money in some ways is a bit of a misnomer because actually quite a lot of the book is about the history of tokens and it's about maybe reading the present moment through like the history of this extra monetary economy. What I find really fascinating is how much of kind of What we seem to think of as being really, really kind of contemporary sort of things like this uh, hot tub streamer being gifted virtual, you know, ice creams for pretending to be like a robotic game character. What we think of as being like extremely online or extremely kind of niche sort of of the moment things are actually just iterations of Tokens that have been around for millennia, whether that's, you know, tokens that were used to pay for sex work in ancient Rome or tokens that were used for voting contracts or even, you know, today we have uh, tokens that represent uh, tokenized grain or tokenized soy, for example, that are, you know, being produced by Argentinian farmers. Um, Some of the the very earliest forms of money were tokenized um, grain that were held in Mesopotamian warehouses um and were represented by clay tokens so there's a really really kind of like very long history i guess of 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 these sorts of tokens that represented um represented sort of claims i guess to to assets or represented um yeah value so sorry so you're asking me uh two things there you asked me sort of were these tokens new? And I was saying no, but I think you had another another part of that question as well. Well, was... yeah,
0: so I'm sort of wondering how were his tokens used uh-huh. historically as oh. a medium of exchange yeah. um, independently of money in the sort of more formal sense, but yeah. also in conjunction with...
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess in lots of ways. So one is that they they were used to um, represent sort of stores of value like the Mesopotamian grain tokens that I, I was talking about there. So tokens were a way of kind of onboarding value into an economy. Um, but they also, yeah, were used in sort of very kind of informal ways as well. So uh, tokens were used to... Uh, sort of in the absence sometimes of readily available kind of sovereign money or state-backed money. And so uh, I mentioned a second ago kind of spinetre, which were, you know, they're not really sure what they were used for, but allegedly were potentially used for sex work because it was sort of illegal, A, to, I suppose, use tokens with uh, an image of the Roman emperor on it to sort of pay for sex work uh it was illegal for slaves um to handle money and so these tokens a bit like the token in the in the beer in the student union bar these tokens were sort of a way to sort of get around that particular transaction um historians think you know so tokens like today, I suppose, were used to onboard value. They were used as a sort of an extra regulatory sleight of hand, a way to perform transactions that were in some ways extra legal, extra regulatory. Tokens were used in ancient Rome as well for various sorts of voting or um, judicial sort of processes to pay for jury duty. Um, Tokens were, yeah, I guess they were used for... um, Oh God, I mean everything that tokens are sort of used for today. I mean, tokens were used for script. So um I mentioned Amazon earlier. Amazon paying, you know, its workers in this sort of special token that can only be redeemed through the Amazon um store. Historically, companies, you know, paid workers in a special token called Script that could only be redeemed in company stores at a price that um the company sort of sets, so a kind of double form of exploitation. Um, so you know, what I find really interesting is that, you know, as we're seeing these tokens sort of emerge that platforms are sort of issuing and that are riding the rails of information and communication technologies, um, none of these are really new necessarily. You know, they're sort of new iterations of these historical tokens that have been around for, you know, millennia.
0: It does seem like one thing that's new and that we've been talking about quite a bit for the last five to 10 years or so is sort of the emergence of blockchain technology Mm -hmm. as a way of creating and managing distribution and ownership of tokens. And before that, as you say in the book, digital technology and connectivity writ large how do you think that that transition from a physical world to a digital world of exchange has affected both money and tokens?
1: I think uh, the example I use um, is one um, kind of in an Irish context where I'm from. So, uh, in Ireland in the 1980s there was a token uh called the butter voucher which um it's basically like you know it's like a food stamp so it was a relief uh, voucher that people got alongside uh, of uh their dole or their you know relief payment and it was ostensibly it was exchangeable for uh, a pound of butter I think um and yeah it was sort of a, a token that uh yeah like food stamps was supposed to solve two problems so people didn't have enough food but also because of some eu uh policy as well there was a what was called a butter mountain so there was like a glut of uh, agricultural produce so they were trying to get rid of the butter as well um but actually in practice the tokens weren't really exchanged for butter so hilariously when you talk to people about butter what they these butter vouchers anybody kind of over the age of 40 or 50 will tell you all the things that you could get for your butter voucher so they are called kind of colloquially in dublin backy vouchers because you got cigarettes for your butter vouchers you know or you got fast you got beer or, you know so it's kind of hilarious like the 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 tokens weren't used for butter most of the time and um That's possible because even though the tokens came with these kinds of strings attached to terms and conditions like written all over the paper, people and shopkeepers sort of turned a blind eye to whatever the the conditions were, you know, and that's possible because those conditions aren't hard coded and not programmed into the tokens. And obviously what we're seeing today is increasingly those sorts of conditions are being programmed at issuance by the platform and by the state into the tokens themselves. So today, obviously, in the states, you know, you have SNAP benefits, um, where that is another—you know—it's another sort of a, a relief voucher. But unlike the, the butter voucher in the nineteen eighties, that's a, an electronic benefits card where it's it's tied to a specific person's identity. You know, it's 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 a uh, As far as I understand, it's just not possible for somebody to actually buy, you know, hygiene products with that, buy hot deli food. Um, So you have these tokens then where it's not only sort of programming value, it's programming values. Obviously, we heard a lot this summer about Sam Altman's, you know, WorldCoin project where this is sort of a token that's like programming identity, you know, directly into the tokens. We were speaking just a minute ago about, I suppose, the sort of history of these tokens, and obviously there's been these sorts of relief tokens for, for again, centuries. You know, alms for the poor in medieval Europe were, you know, were all about sort of deciding who who was the deserving poor. You know, and if if you if you were if you were given alms, it meant that you were des- the deserving poor. And the economist, um, the economic anthropologist. Viviana Zelitzer has done really amazing work where she looked at like the history of charitable tokens in the 18th and 19th century in America and the ways in which charitable organizations earmarked cash, which is seen as being this dangerous form of relief and transformed it then into these tokens with strings attached so that, you know, the poor who were sort of being framed as being sort of morally suspect could be educated into kind of good spending Um, But the difference, you know, as I think the butter voucher really illustrates is that today, the the kind of workarounds that people had or the the little bit of wiggle room or agency is is sort of is closing down. Um, And I guess that's what's so concerning, not only with sort of things like WorldCoin or these privately issued tokens, but also with um, some of the central bank digital currency proposals that we're seeing. So in the book, you talk about the relationship
0: between cash, the kind of paradigmatic form of money, and what happens when money goes online, right? And it it seems like that transition to electronic money brings in a lot of the features that you've been talking about in relation to tokens insofar as it stops being totally fungible and anonymous and starts becoming something that has meaning beyond the exchange value of the unit of currency in question how do you think that changes the way we think about money and its relationship to tokens
1: i think um one of the things that was sort of interesting like you you were talking about um there's sort of a history in in um in in literature in the 18th century um just i think it was called the literature of social circulation where people animated banknotes or tokens and, and sort of made them talk because they were sort of bearer instruments that moved from hand to hand they were able to sort of animate their journeys and i think the quote is something like get inside the hearts and minds of of their bearers and like bear up their secrets and um i think what's sort of interesting then about you know when these tokens sort of move online is that there's you know a whole sort of range then of of metadata that that sort of comes to light not only sort of about the sort of value of the token itself but also about you know where it's traveling to you know what it's being spent on and in some ways actually that actually that metadata itself becomes more valuable than the token um And yeah, possibly none of this is that surprising to us today, you know, following something like Zoboff's surveillance capitalism, which I think, you know, has has become kind of something that I think the general public even is, is quite familiar with now. But that sort of transactional data is used for advertising, obviously used to fine tune Things like logistics and supply chains and increasingly used to underwrite credit and access to various different sorts of um, services.
0: Part of the second half, primarily, oh. of your book looks at the emergence of, of Bitcoin and other kinds of cryptographic coins in sort of the run up to the kind of blockchain moment that... Yeah that we're in today. In your research, sort of what did you find to be the motivation for the creation of Bitcoin and some of these other early cryptocurrencies? And did the motivation for the creation of these coins kind of line up with your assessment on the back end of what they actually do in practice?
1: Yeah, I think I, I, I'm i not a historian, but I almost wish I was because I just found, like, the history um, and the ideologies that go into crypto, like, so fascinating. Um, so, like, one branch of it was, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at the sort of cypherpunk and the extropian mailing lists. Um, so two mailing lists that was emerged in the 1990s and the early noughties, that we're exploring, they're kind of exploring this weird mishmash of, I guess, libertarian politics, um, anarchist politics. And then in the extropian case, it's also like uh, transhumanist, like freeze your head and, you know, colonize Mars. So it's this weird, like, intersection of, um, you know, freezing your head and living on an island in the middle of the sea and you know also creating money that the state can't interfere with and I just found it really like fascinating like how does freezing your head and also creating money you know that like the state can't uh, interfere with how do these ideas sort of go together you know um I guess it seemed like there there's an ambition running through all of it, which is about in some ways, you know, it's 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 this idea which which is very, very um uh it's very much to the fore in the in the Bitcoin white paper, I guess, which is this sort of idea of trustlessness or trust in the code, um, which is about sort of replacing Replacing politics as sort of human interlocution with um, politics as, as sort of um, um, as code and um, that's you know, if anything, I think that's that's a sort of that's the idea that that you see coming up again and again and again um, within the cypherpunk community, even I think when they're sort of arguing or wrangling with each other, they have this sort of put down where they say, like, cyberpunk's write code, you know, when somebody uh, starts kind of trying to, like, have a philosophical debate. Um, Another sort of historical branch, though, I mean, I don't know whether that's even where to start it, though, because um, I ended up kind of going back and sort of looking at the history of, like, American anarchism as well. Um, And it was really surprising to me because, like, maybe I was more familiar with sort of, marxist sort of european marxist history and i didn't realize uh kind of naively maybe that like american anarchism is so um it's so specific you know and that you have this really sort of quite specific blend i guess of free market ideologies and socialist ideologies mixed together where it's almost like we can create a socialist uh, utopia by giving the market free reign and i always thought this was something that you know really inhered in silicon valley politics and sort of came to the fore uh quite recently and yet actually you sort of you see that in quite early anarchist uh experiments i guess um even in like the kind of 18th and 19th century in a, in american anarchism uh, maybe this is something that's like no surprise to 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 you but it was a big it was a big surprise to me when i was um looking at the history of some of these like American experiments in anarchist utopias that were designed to do away with the middleman, you know, designed to recreate money. Yeah.
0: So in light of the history and historical work that you've done, Mm -hmm. why do you think so many of these coins were so popular or seemed like the future when they were initially created. And do you get the sense looking at them today that the future that the creators imagined is the future we ended up seeing these kinds of coins and quasi-currencies developing to actually accomplish in the uses that they were actually put to?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it seems like... Most of the experiments in mutualism um, were quite niche, actually. I don't know whether anybody outside of the little kind of enclaves themselves thought that they were the future until about 2008. What's really interesting to me is, you know, quite a lot of the technologies to sort of create something like Bitcoin are already there. But why does it suddenly sort of take off then at that particular moment? Um There's a a paper by uh, a European activist, Jaramil, or Dennis uh, Rue is his name, where he describes the financial crash as sort of having broken the taboo on money. And I really agree with that idea. And it certainly felt that way anyway, for me living in Ireland at that particular moment in time, that up until the crash, I think, um, I never really sort of thought about money. Uh, in any sort of technical sense, you know, obviously I thought about it in terms of having it and not having it. Um, But uh, I didn't really stop to think about what money was or what it did. And um, that very much changed around that time. And I think it changed obviously because the monetary system was in crisis. I think that was the case for a lot of people um, where suddenly we were having these conversations about what would it mean to you know for our country to sort of default on its deaths for example uh, what were the kind of practical implications of that what what ex- actually was money and how had you know our how had our monetary system failed and yeah I think a lot of people were sort of rethinking what money was what it could do and also had lost a lot of faith in you know a centralised monetary system and I think that is why suddenly then these sorts of imaginaries of a decentralized money became uh, so popular. But I find it so um, strange, I suppose, or surprising. It made me feel really old when those ideas then came back to the fore recently with Web3. It was like as though that previous conversation 10 years ago had never happened. We were hearing about like decentralizing the middleman again. And if you read somebody like Proudhon, who's like the father of anarchism, uh, apart from the slightly kind of archaic language, you know, he's also talking about the parasitic middleman and removing the middleman from money. So those ideas have been around for like centuries, and they just seem to be kind of popping up in in different guises. And yet, you know, nobody ever actually removes the middleman. In in some ways, it just seems to be about... uh, making making space for 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 sort of a new middleman the platform maybe in this case
0: mm. well so this is probably appropriate for someone who teaches at at an art school you spend the last third or so of the book talking about the art market sort of the recent historical development of the art market and the role of NFTs or non-fungible tokens in relation to, to the art market. So I, I wonder if you could just kind of briefly talk about how you see or kind of how you would characterize the modern development of the art market that made it feel tokenized or open the concept of tokenization of artwork in a way that might have led to or made the kind of development of NFT technology in the NFT market make make some kind of sense in relation to the art market, perhaps more so than other markets?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I guess maybe there's there's two things that are significant. So one is... um, I mean, I think art and money have been intertwined forever, even though we like to pretend that they're they're separate. You know, they're very much entwined. Um, and obviously there has, you know, been a market for art since like the Medici's. But again, maybe kind of post-crash and definitely in the past decade or so, we've seen the rise of art as an asset class and, you know, various different financial institutions producing um reports on art as an asset class or a passion asset um so um, yeah increasingly investors are buying art as a uh, as an investment um and it's sort of interesting it's often framed i suppose as a kind of a hedge um uh against um other maybe less volatile investments at least that's sort of how i've seen it framed so where something like um, oil or property maybe is seen as being a safer bet, art, while it's it's sort of less of a safe bet, can be a good way of hedging your bets because it doesn't always necessarily follow kind of the dips and troughs of the market and the way other things do. Um, so that's how it's often framed and that's one of its sorts of advantages. But then uh, a disadvantage is that art is an illiquid asset. So once you buy your artwork it can be sort of hard to turn it back into cash um and so that's seen as one of the sort of drawbacks of art um and so I guess that's one of the places then where kind of tokenization or blockchain started to come in um where different um I suppose financial instruments and different um different uh, financial groups were, were sort of looking at you know how how can we sort of create different ways of of making making art more liquid so that somebody maybe who can't afford to buy uh, the Mona Lisa can still invest in art you could buy maybe a small fraction of a painting for example and have it in their portfolio or somebody who could afford to buy an entire painting can leverage that as an asset um, when they are applying for a loan. So there's sort of new new kinds of um, things like art-backed lending or art funds where people collectively buy paintings that are coming to the fore. And these things are sort of emerging then around blockchain. Um, we also have uh, the rise of what are called freeports, which are sort of like banks, are so historically free ports were uh tax-free spaces where goods were um imported and exported quite quickly so things like tea and grain that were maybe coming into a country and going out again so it didn't make sense to apply duty to those goods because they were just in transit um but today uh those sorts of ex- uh, tax-free regulations still apply uh and people take advantage of them to ship passion assets like art into these freeport spaces and hold them there indefinitely without paying duty even though the goods actually aren't in transit even though they're going nowhere anytime soon um and so people will actually move art into these freeport spaces and um, several of which for example are located in uh, Switzerland so in Zurich and Geneva and just uh keep them there indefinitely until the conditions are right for resale. So I visited, for example, uh, the Freeport in Geneva as part of the research for my book. And allegedly there's more Picassos in the Freeport in Geneva than there are in um, the Museum of Modern Art collection in New York. Um, But there is various different arrangements today between Freeports, for example, in Switzerland and these sorts of fledgling blockchain um, companies. We hear a lot about NFTs and the tokenization of these immaterial digital works, but the flip side of that is actually companies that are tokenizing physical assets and physical um, artworks uh, on the blockchain. So using them as a way of making illiquid um, physical things more liquid in the market. Mm. Um, Yeah. And in some ways, I think that was a trend I found, if anything, more interesting than the flip side, which is also companies that are, you know, experimenting with uh, kind of onboarding or trying to sort of make scarce immaterial or digital artworks, which is sort of the other side of the market.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like to me that one of the big insights I took away from your book was the way in which tokens can be a way of complicating money by mm-hmm. enabling a transfer not only of value but also of of meaning and it seems like in the nft market as you describe it the meaning is kind of in, intertwined with and fundamentally driving the value in question, so I mean, like for example, you talk about you know Tim Berners Lee selling an NFT that represented part of the code of the World Wide Web, or you know uh, other people's you know selling all NFTs representing all manner of kind of intangible things that nonetheless seem to have some kind of value or meaning at least transitorily to to somebody. What what do you think people are buying when they buy that kind of stuff? And what does the transaction mean when it takes place?
1: I mean, I think since the 1970s onwards, like there was sort of a, a shift away from sort of selling art as being about like selling kind of material things, so selling like sculptures or paintings towards... The, selling ideas um, so lucy lippard who is a art historian wrote a famous um essay in the late 1960s called the dematerialization of the art object and um in that she's sort of arguing that this shift away from um producing material things uh to producing ideas would challenge the art market you know that it would um it would, you know, it would make it impossible to commodify art. And, you know, even Lippert herself sort of came back mm-hmm. like five or six years later. It was like, my bad, I was wrong. Actually, what this facilitated was, you know, uh, an even sort of greater financialization of art. So we we sort of saw a shift away uh, from physical things into like an increasingly kind of speculative market where what we're seeing now is that, um yeah, maybe physical things aren't so important, but now it's it's just that it's sort of a market where, um, yeah, the 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 art market has sort of found ways of 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 marketing or selling kinds of ideas. And what really fascinated me was even though there was so much like uh, vitriol or maybe outrage about NFTs, and you know they're just stupid pictures, and you don't even get anything, and all you're getting is a token, is that, but that that has actually been the case with the art market for decades, you know, that that actually for for so much conceptual art, what has been transferred has literally just been tokens and deeds for, for so long. So um uh I was just really, really fascinated to sort of look at examples of this in art history when I was writing the book. So there's, for example, a conceptual artist Dan Flavin, who makes um makes sculptures out of um, fluorescent light bulbs that are very similar to the kinds of ones you could buy in a garden centre. Um, and um, there was a sort of a famous, well, not no, sorry, but I said famous, but it's not famous at all, actually. Every time I have to look it up, it's it's very hard to find. I think there's just maybe one entry somewhere on the web um, where somebody's asking for legal advice because they have lost the deed to their Dan Flavin, I think, in a fire. So they still have the physical Dan Flavin, but they no longer have the token associated with it. And they're asking for legal advice. Do I still own a Dan Flavin? And the answer is no, because like a lot of conceptual art, the entire value of the Dan Flavin is in the token. It's not in the physical work of art. And so, yeah, a lot of outrage about NFTs and yes you know, NFTs are, are, they're they're the art market as usual, you know, and a lot of ways they're they're the market as usual and their money as usual. I mean, they're they're no different really from fiat currency either in terms of uh, the kind of monetary system that we've had since the 1970s where our money is, you know, entirely built on like our consensus or faith in that system. Yeah.
0: Indeed. indeed well back to the future everything will mm-hmm. do again <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: yeah rachel thank you so much for for coming on the show to talk about your excellent book i hope i thanks hope listeners me. will check it out because uh it's it's really fantastic and i'm sure they'll enjoy it as much as i did
1: thank you thanks so much brian <laughs>
0: He's an all-American guy, having big times, spending his dimes, and lots of cups of coffee and pie. Saturday's my day, cause the check comes on Friday. But why should I holler, here it is Monday and I've still got a dollar.